Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rackman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week, we're looking at the future of migration in a world of climate change, populism, and economic and demographic change. My guest is Parag Khanna, who's founder and managing director of FutureMap, a global strategic advisory firm. He was born in India, is currently based in Singapore, and has worked for the US government and taught at universities all over the world. He's also author of a new book on mass migration called Move. So how will large-scale flows of people change the world? Over the past decade, mass migrations become one of the central issues of world politics. In 2016, Donald Trump waged a successful campaign for the US presidency after putting a simple promise at the heart of his campaign. We're going to have strong, incredible borders, and people are going to come into our country, but they're going to come into our country legally. They're going to come in legally. We're going to build a wall. It's going to be built. It's not even, believe it or not, it's not even a difficult thing to do. Even in the post-Trump world, the movements of refugees and economic migrants continues to make the headlines. The Biden administration is struggling with the stability of America's southern border. And in the UK, the government's sworn to stop the flow of refugees across the channel. The Home Secretary, Priti Patel, plans to make it harder to claim asylum. For the first time, whether people enter the UK legally or illegally will have an impact on how their asylum claim progresses and on their status in the UK if that claim is successful. But Britain is also finding that it badly needs legal migrants. Faced with a shortage of truck drivers, the Johnson government has started an emergency visa scheme to fill the gap. This haulier says he's already heard from Polish, Romanian and Czech drivers forced to go home after Brexit, asking to return. Yeah, we're getting emails and texts and phone calls from the drivers that used to work for us. Um, saying, you know, when can, how can we come back? We want to come back. So, yes, they're looking... Parag Khanna believes that governments that attempt to stand in the way of large-scale flows of people are fighting a losing battle. So I began our conversation by asking him why he thinks the world is standing on the brink of a new age of mass migration. Well, first of all, we have been nomadic for most of human history. 100,000 years of mankind wandering around the world and colonizing the continents. We became sedentary in the last several millennia, and particularly the last few centuries. But that doesn't mean that those centuries were not characterized by mass migrations. They were. Even, Gideon, the age of nationalism, right, the term we use to describe the 19th century, was also a century of mass migrations. To take just one data point, the 60 million Europeans who migrated to North America. Not to mention it was still a colonial era. So there were tens of millions of Africans and Asians that were moved around, particularly within the realm of the British Empire. So we've always had mass migrations, and they have been political, 
world wars, genocides. They've been economic, people in search of opportunity. Think about the late 20th century migrations of um, Asians and Latin Americans to the United States and, of course, Turks and others into Europe. And so the political, economic, technological look at uh, the Rust Belt in light of a financial crisis. And of course, now with remote work, you know, digitization allows people to move. And then, of course, let's talk about climate change, right? You know, climate has always been a determining factor in where we live. And as the climate niche, as it's known, moves northward in latitude, mankind will have to move with it. So it is inevitable that despite the ironic moment of this lockdown, that we will be migrating again in very, very large numbers. I can see the the, the climate logic, the economic logic driving all of that, the demographic logic, you know, much younger population in Africa, uh, older population in Europe and Asia and so on. But already we're in the middle of a big political backlash against migration. I mean, what did Trump run on? Build the wall. Do you think that that backlash can prevent this or slow it? I think there are two important things here. The first is that the demographic imbalances and the labor market shortages, as you know, Britain has obviously been witnessing as well, are so severe that you cannot divorce that from the political logic. It will eventually impact the political logic. Countries are waking up and saying, oh my goodness, our xenophobia, our populism, our aging population, our lack of trial, our low fertility is affecting our economy. We therefore have to be more pragmatic about migration. So you can't hold these things to be rigid and separate. The political logic of cultural unity and nationalism versus the need to have a pragmatic demographic strategy for your own national economic survival, right? That's one point. The second is, who is the we that you're talking about, right? If you look at British immigration policy today, it's easier to migrate to Britain than it was before Brexit. An Indian student can just show his graduation certificate and he can gain entry into the United Kingdom. In what sense? That they get a automatic work visa or what? Right. You don't need to demonstrate, as you did before, your proof of employment. In other words, here's my letter of the job offer. Or you don't even have to pay a security bond. These are two of the conditions that used to affect Asian migrants to Britain. Today, it's I have a pulse. Here's a legitimate graduation degree. And Britain is letting you in. Record number of foreign students have been admitted to the UK as well. So despite Brexit, you now have a very pragmatic immigration policy in this area, not when it comes to truckers, but when it comes to young professionals. America, the most recent census was just published, launched in September with new data. Despite the Trump administration, America became more diverse, more foreigners, larger Latino population, more people self-identifying as mixed race, more mixed race marriages, more mixed race children. All of that has been happening almost uh, irrevocably despite the Trump administration. So I do believe, honestly, Gideon, from a demographic standpoint, in 10 years' time, we'll look back and say, Brexit what? Trump who? That people will keep moving. Well, that's, okay, that's the West. And I I think I, I, I buy your logic that it's, it's kind of an unstoppable force, although there'll be backlashes. What about Asia, though? I mean, when I was last in Japan, there was an agonized debate in the dais about what seemed very tiny openings to immigration by Western standards. And yet they have an enormous demographic crisis. You know, population is shrinking. Why do you think even in Asia, or China also seems very wary of letting foreigners in, they've also got a demographic crisis. Do you really think that they will have to swallow those things and become multicultural societies? 
It's a great question. So it's hard to generalize about Asia, much as it is, by the way, about the West. We didn't yet talk about Canada and Germany, two countries that both are letting in hundreds of thousands of people a year, and there's very little political backlash. Now, it happened in Germany because of the refugee crisis, but the German government has just issued a paper saying that they need 400,000 migrants a year, which is an enormous number for that country. And they've just had an election where, you know, where did you see the right-wing AFD party in the German election? You didn't. So let's not generalize about the West because, in fact, they're leading progressive Western societies that are becoming mass migration societies like Canada and Germany. And of course, America has been and Britain has been. So again, I see a different picture. Now, Asia, it's also very hard to generalize. Now, because Japan has over 100 million people, China has over a billion people, they're not going to become diluted, deracinated, denationalized sort of melting pots. But that doesn't mean that they aren't going to bring in lots of foreigners. And Japan is such an interesting case. I have a whole chapter on Japan in the book because I didn't set out to contradict the conventional wisdom that it is the Galapagos insular culture because culturally it will adapt much more slowly than it is, shall we say, you know, logistically or statistically. Because there are 3 million foreigners living in Japan today. Obviously, that's more than ever in history, and the number is growing. And it's Chinese, and it's Korean, and it's Vietnamese, and it's even South Asians. There is a story I tell about the first Muslim cemetery that's opening in Japan, because it's not just temporary guest workers. People have moved to Japan and are settling in Japan. They're doing Italy-like schemes, where they're selling off villages, towns, homes for practically free. There's an entire parallel banking system in Japan devoted just to subsidizing the purchase of dilapidated homes. Now, that is a initially for Japanese people, but of course, there are very few takers. But there are plenty of people in the rest of the world with cash, with savings, who want to retire, who want a stable climate, who they will open that scheme to. I bet they will. And like you say, it'll be agonizing in the parliament, right? Every little minor detail will be sweated, you know, to the nth degree. But I have talked to quite a few politicians in Japan and looked at the survey data and looked at the numbers and looked at the people and the composition in the streets. Universities are changing the language of instruction to English. They are actually recruiting young people into the labor force and it's construction and it's nursing and hospitality and it's obviously IT and engineers. If you go to these thriving tech campuses in Fukuoka, companies like Rakuten and others, guess what? The lingua franca is English, right? And you've got sometimes in some companies, a lot of the back office or IT programmers are from China and looking for opportunities in a livable place like Japan. So it's happening under the radar in so many places, even Russia, by the way. Now, China also, let's take China. As you know, the most recent census, they got their total population figure off by a little bit, which is to say 120 million people. They overestimated their population. As you know, because of the one-child policy of enormous demographic imbalance. So they are massively recruiting young people to do services work, menial work, labor, agriculture, elderly care, all of these things. There is a war for the Filipino nurse. One of the protagonists of this book is the Filipino nurse because the Philippines will never be able to produce enough to meet global demand. And so you will see this nursing industry spread massively across India, Indonesia, and elsewhere to recruit and train young single women who, as it happens, also want to get out of their countries. Neither you nor I are sanguine about the Indian political system, nor about the country's climate. It's a place where a young woman rightly wants to get out, you know, and wants to take a job elsewhere. Well, I must say, what, what you have to say resonates a lot. My wife works in a London hospital, and her colleagues are, above all, from the Philippines, 
from India and from Nigeria, actually. That's right. And by the way, you know, much to the surprise, I suppose, of many Western European voters, and let's take Germany as an example, they may be anti-immigrant and they may be trying to train more Germans to take jobs in those professions, but it's not working. Fertility, you know, promotion is not working. Taking lower wage services work, even with higher wages, is not working. So what the German government is doing is actually putting up billboards and placards in Manila saying, please come and learn German. You get a free ticket, you know, to move to Germany and become a high-paid nurse. So again, it's a war for young talent across all of these professions. And the question is not whether our populations are sentimentally xenophobic today and how it might change tomorrow and this party and that party. It's a numbers game. And there's those countries that have recognized the need for young people as taxpayers and entrepreneurs and, you know, services workers and those that haven't. So what you present so far, I mean, perhaps it's the way I guided the conversation, is actually a fairly optimistic case in which, you know, people looking for opportunities find it, the West or other developed societies or richer societies in Asia find the labor they need. And yet it seems to me there's a very dark subtext to your book, which is that you see quite large parts of the world where there are billions of people becoming close to uninhabitable. To be honest, the scenarios that you and I have just been talking about are barely adequate to cope with the reality of the vast swaths of the world that are becoming unlivable. And you mentioned earlier about your northern societies are wealthy but depopulating, and those are also the places that are becoming more climatologically livable, whereas the majority of the human population and the majority of young people live in places that are becoming uninhabitable. Is that an overstatement, uninhabitable? They're becoming decreasingly livable, and that is absolutely a factual statement when we look at what's happened with falling water tables, with floods, droughts, heat waves, and so forth. It doesn't mean that you can declare this country is dead as of X year. But are those populations meeting their potential? Are they productive societies by any stretch of the imagination? No, not even close. And we would improve overall human welfare substantially by relocating those people rather than believing that they can continue to thrive in the environments that they're in. You know, Gideon, if all of us spent a day or more time in the parts of Africa that have been so devastated by drought, the same thing has happened in South Asia. The same thing is happening in Central America, of course, which is why you have the migrant waves on the southern U.S. border. There's a huge difference legally, and I think this is worth talking about, between saying, okay, Syria is somewhat stable, therefore you Syrians that have sought asylum here in Europe can in fact go back. And as you well know, the Syrians are saying, please do not send us back. This is not a country to which you should send us back politically, even if it meets the legal test of being stable enough that I as a Syrian national could be sent back. You can't have that same conversation when it comes to a climate devastated country, a country that has no more water supply. You cannot in good conscience do that. Now, we don't have the legal mechanism per se to determine what the exact trigger moment is when you would send back environmental refugees. But Gideon, the number of climate refugees today, not in a future scenario, today, is larger than the number of political refugees in the world. So this is a problem that we needed to already be talking about. And where are they climate refugees now and where are they likely to be in the future? Well, most climate refugees are internally displaced people, right? Or we could say at a sub-regional level, people within East Africa and the Horn of Africa, of course, within Central America. And now they've been kept in Mexico. They haven't made it into the United States. And just because, although it's a problem on the border for the United States and Americans may complacently say, well, we've managed to keep them away, it doesn't mean it's not a problem for Mexico, to have three or four million effectively climate and political refugees from Central America, let's spare a thought 
for a country with much less capacity than America having to deal with this. And Mexico, too, is an environmentally stressed country. So sub-regionally concentrated climate refugees, but also certainly across border and international. You and I both know that there are aspects or trigger moments within everything from the Arab Spring to the Darfur genocide to Syria and its revolution and civil war that relate to climate change as well. And one of the things I do is to look at the geographic constraints. We have to be realistic. We're not talking about mass airlifts of people from Africa to Siberia. So within geographic constraints, what I've done is to look at the most at-risk populations, which is very much South Asia, right? India and Pakistan and Bangladesh. Where can you imagine some measurable number of people, but it could be tens of millions, potentially relocating in the coming years? And I've identified those geographies. I call them climate oases. And also looking at the Near East. So for example a kind of report from eastern Anatolia and the Caucasus region, right? And it's interesting because that region, which is the headwaters of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, actually has been massively depopulating because of insufficient job opportunities. And those are the young people that have moved to Ankara and Istanbul and become a real headache for Erdogan in municipal elections. Meanwhile, it's this beautiful, verdant space. You know, it's the Turkish equivalent of the British, you know, Midlands and Scottish Highlands. I call it the Aspen of Anatolia. You realize very well that this region abuts or borders Iraq, Syria, and Iran. Three populous and massively water-stressed regions. And of course, Turkey already has four million refugees within its borders. But can you not for a moment, even with all the borders in the world, Look at that map of human geography and see 150 million people whose water tables are decimated where there's scorching heat. And then see that a couple of degrees latitude north in eastern Turkey is one of the most livable geographies on the entire planet. And then tell me with a straight face that you expect that border to hold 10 years, 20 years, 30, 40 years from now. Yeah, and that's a very vivid example of where the desirable place becomes the undesirable and vice versa. And I guess we're going to see much more of that. I mean, in the United States, the Sun Belt has been the boom area, and presumably it may get just a little bit too hot. Or indeed, you referenced Siberia. Now, being sent to Siberia, as you know, is not generally not held to be a very good thing. But you're implying that maybe in 30 years' time, I don't know what the time frame is, Siberia will actually be somewhere where people are moving to. It's already happening today. You know, there have been heat waves in Siberia. So let's be clear that there's climatic volatility. One of the lessons I learned in the process of researching this is that, you know, the future of human mobility and migration is not just a one-way street. It's potentially becoming more nomadic again and people moving multiple times. If you look at the climate risk that can afflict even places that the climate futurists tell us are livable, like Siberia. Well, as you know, there are forest fires in Siberia and there's no fire service to put them out. And you have subsidence in the ground as you have permafrost thawing. So vast crevices are emerging in the soil and sucking houses down with them. By the way, the same thing is happening in Florida because of the topography of of Florida. So people will have to move more and more. But yes, again, it's relative. It's better to be in Siberia as a farmer than to be in drought-stricken India. Right. And so Russia has imported Indian farmers. This is one of the things. And I've talked to officials at um, universities and some of the provinces of eastern Russia when I've traveled through there. And they've said, you know what, We're, we've got Chinese infrastructure projects. We want to rebuild our dilapidated Soviet industrial sites and cities. 
We want to have manufacturing. And of course, we need more industrial agriculture and all of these things. But we don't have any people because, as you know very well, this is one of the most rapidly depopulating countries in the world. And what population Russia does have is west of the Ural Mountains, but five-sixths of Russia or more is east of the Ural Mountains. So all the time that I've spent in that region, I meet officials who say, we need people. We need Chinese, we need Indian, we need Vietnamese, we need whoever we can find. And they are actually bilaterally bringing in people. At the universities, I've met officials who have said that they want to switch their medium of instruction to English because they want to capture the Asian students, you know, who are a bit more cash-strapped and are not coming to Oxbridge to study. So that's actually happening. You will never hear that from Vladimir Putin. But under the radar, again, the mid-level officials, the technocrats, the people who actually have to deal with the day-to-day challenge of fixing and rebuilding a country, they realize that you can't do it without people. Just to end on a point I touched upon, I mean, you, I think, are quite a forward-looking person, quite an optimistic person. But I must say, looking at your conclusions, the future you paint seems to me, in some respects, rather dystopian. I mean, a lot of people moving a lot of times and not necessarily for good reasons. Exactly right. You know, the book has four scenarios. One is called Regional Fortresses, which kind of resembles today's reality, where we're very guarded in the North about migration. You know, we're willing to offer some technology to help people to make do where they are. Another scenario is called the New Middle Ages. Another one is called Barbarians at the Gate. So that's three out of four are not so great for much of humanity from a utilitarian perspective. Only the fourth, only one scenario in this book is called Northern Lights, And that one is progressive, and it speaks about a mass resettlement of the world population, but in an orderly, controlled, gradual, sensible, peaceful way. And we have to thread quite a few needles to get to that scenario. That was Parent Karna, the author and strategist, ending this edition of the Rackman Review. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me again next week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.